many organizations have improved safety by what I would call brute force. They've just added in layers and layers of things that people do, rather than thinking about redesigning the job and doing it better and also safely. You are listening to WorkShift, a podcast from the Workers' Compensation Board of Nova Scotia. Welcome to WorkShift, Episode 4. Today we'll be talking about safety culture. My name is Stuart McLean. I'm the CEO of the Workers' Compensation Board. So today we're going to talk about why it's important for organizations to have a strong safety culture. Safety culture guides what your people do when no one's looking. It's shared perceptions, it's beliefs, it's attitudes. Focusing on safety has always been giving organizations a competitive edge, and that's especially true today as our province embarks on an aggressive growth strategy to double our working population over the next four decades. But what does it mean to have a strong safety culture? How do you build one? And more importantly, how do you measure and improve it? Today's guest, Dr. Mark Fleming, is the past CN Professor of Safety Culture at St. Mary's University. He's also a doctor of psychology. He supervises the work of the safety culture team at St. Mary's University, where researchers work in partnership with local national and international organizations to study and address safety issues. He's currently involved in research in a wide range of industries, including rail, petrochemical, construction, and power generation. He also advises several Canadian and international organizations on safety culture assessment and improvement, including the International Atomic Energy Agency, His internationally recognized research aims to provide best practice guidelines to industry and criteria for more successful safety programs. Very excited today to be uh, speaking with one of my friends and and one of the people that I listen to the most uh, in terms of learning around safety culture, around the business that we're in. Dr. Mark Fleming, welcome to WorkShift. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks for having me uh, on this uh, podcast. It's uh, really interesting. I always enjoy uh, chatting to you about safety and safety culture. And uh, we've we've been sort of collaborating nearly now for for 20 years. I had actually just arrived in the province uh, from the UK uh, when uh, uh, when we started collaborating on sort of injury prevention and over the years have had some really interesting conversations. Well, what I really love about you is is uh you have the balance of academic, but you also have the practical because you worked in the North Sea, you worked in a lot of different places. And so, so why are you so passionate about safety culture in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it starts from the from the time, but 30 years ago, I started working on safety. Um, I had um, you know finished my undergrad and a, a master's in uh, human factors and ergonomics. And I was, uh, you know, looking for a job because I was in debt and uh, got a job working in an offshore safety project. And uh, we'd had a, a tragedy uh, in the North Sea when uh, in 1988, uh, Piper Alpha, where 167 people died on the platform. And the public inquiry in, into that identified a poor safety culture as the, as the cause to it. And at that time, we really didn't have much of a thought about what safety culture was and, and how we would go about doing it. Um, and, you know, I remember reading the public inquiry uh, into Piper and, and at the back, they have the list of all the people who died and uh, what they were doing. And many of them were, were people like me who were young, who, had, who were maybe students who were working in the offshore industry for the summer. And you looked at that waste of life, loss of life, and you thought, we well, need to be able to do something different. And while the engineering uh, solutions, uh, they were far more effective or more further ahead in terms of developing those ideas, um, the cultural or psychological aspects that contributed to that disaster, really, we knew very little. 
Um, and so that's why I got got interested in safety culture. I could see it as a as a really useful framework uh, to understand why bad things happen and uh, to try and then help organizations uh, become um, more effective at managing the hazards that are present in their workplace. So that's really why I think safety culture became the issue was that when you look at bad things that happen in workplaces, there's always a cultural cause. So when I think about uh, safety culture and how we measure safety culture, there's no question that things are getting harder. It's it's a lot harder to move the needle. Behaviors and thoughts are, are hard things to change. You know, how do we measure that? How do we get under the covers? How do we continue to make improvement there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, the the trajectory and, and the, the um, experience that Nova Scotia has had in terms of improvement over the last, say, 20 years has, has been sort of like many organizations, like many uh, places in the world where, you know, early on you can you can make some some significant improvements by you know identifying those low hanging fruits by bringing in some uh, systems and hazard control and as you as you improve safety um, and as you reduce injuries it becomes harder right so more effort is required to to reduce the risk further um, and also some of the strategies that we may be used in the past don't work as well, right? So particularly, you, you mentioned lagging indicators are looking at outcomes, right? You know, that um, we often focus on that as a, as a sort of guide to both tell us how we're doing, but also to identify what things we should focus on. And unfortunately, um, that, that can be helpful when there's lots of injuries, becomes less and less helpful uh, when there's fewer. And also, there's a, a risk that if you're, if you're focusing a lot on those um, backward-looking injuries that happened in the past, it tends to be those things that are frequent injuries that um, you, would, you would focus your attention on, right? So things that happen a lot or happen uh, very often, rather than what we would call those low-probability, high-consequence events, which are fatalities. And um, that focus on historical events or lagging indicators, I, I, I try to think about it more as we focusing on safety failures, right? So, so that's, that's what those things that happened in the past are, they're safety failures. But they're not, they're not telling you everything about how your, how your system is being managed. So if you just look at your lost time injuries and think, here are the things that are we need to worry about, and you put effort into that, you're very unlikely to be putting enough effort into preventing uh, serious injuries and fatalities because the causes are different um, and um, you know, lost time injuries tend to be the things that are um, musculoskeletal, slips, trips and falls because they're the hazards that most people are exposed to most of the time. So if you only look at um, those um, um, past injuries, you tend to um, miss those high potential injuries. So um, I know a lot of people, um, safety professionals, like to to go back to this idea of an accident triangle and that being a useful thing. And I, I think that is, is one of the things we should start forgetting about in safety. It's not a helpful framework. Um, and it's particularly unhelpful uh, in an environment where we put a lot of effort into safety into reducing, into reducing risk. So people think, oh, well, if we if we remove or we get rid of the injuries at the bottom end of the triangle, we prevent fatalities. And really what we've seen, uh, particularly over the last 10 or 15 years, that that's just not true. 
right? You know, we, 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 there may be a correlation between those things, um, but it definitely doesn't tell us anything about causation. So what I recommend to organizations is that they start looking at the extent to which the controls are present within their workplace rather than focusing on the limited number of injuries that happened in the past. Right? You, you definitely want to learn from them, but if that's all you've got, you're very unlikely to be able to prevent those um, serious injuries and fatalities, which is what people are really interested in. One of your quotes that I've heard you say in the past, you measure safety in its absence versus its presence. Can you can you can you speak about that? Yeah. So so again, that's that's that idea that if we're focus, uh, focusing on you know organizations talk about you know wanting to have a target zero, and really what you're saying is that it's the absence of something, and it's the abs- safety is the absence of injuries, and that way of thinking about safety, I think, really is is becoming less helpful. Um, and it's more it's it's more important to to reframe how you think about safety. So rather than thinking about it as the absence um, of injuries, to think about it as the presence of defenses, the presence of the controls that are in place within our organization. So a question I ask senior leaders um, uh, regularly is, how do you know how safe you are? And I sit there and wait, and eventually somebody will say, well, you know, we've got our injury rate. Um, and then I say, well, no, that tells you how unsafe you are in a very specific way in the past. It tells you nothing about how actually safe you are just now. And that, I think, um, is a really important mind shift around how you think about safety. So safety is the presence of controls or the presence of defenses. So what controls do you have in place to manage the hazards that are present? And how effective are those controls? That's what safety is. And then the question that leaders then ask, well, how do we know that? And that's where the real trouble starts, is that currently within safety, we've got very poor data on terms of those issues, right? We don't have a good measure of those things. What's the role of senior leadership? What what, what would you say to them? They need to understand safety in a, in a different way, right? So I, I speak to senior leaders a lot. And, you know, in general, they're all passionate and want uh, to, the place to be safer. They they want their uh, employees to go home safely, and they they want to do the right thing. But they often, again, are working in this wrong framework where they're seeing it, safety as the absence of injury, and also they don't sometimes see the conflicted messages that they themselves are sending. Right. So there's a, a Robert Burns poem that I often use, which is "Ode to a Mouse," and uh, he uh, in this poem has got a line which says, "Oh, the gift to give us to see ourselves as others see us," and um, I think that is the the, the thing that often leaders miss is that they themselves know that they don't want anyone to get hurt or killed in their in uh, in their work site, and and I truly believe that that's that's where they're at. But actually, sometimes they don't send that message very clearly because they talk about you know production deadlines, they talk about the the stuff of work, and um, they are not sending that signal clearly enough to their employees that actually safety is really about the presence of defenses and they need to focus their energy uh, on those things. You know, one of the very simple interventions that um, senior leaders can do is to visit the work site and talk to people about safety. And often when you talk to leaders, particularly those who maybe aren't from an operational background, maybe they've got a HR background, maybe they've got a finance background, and they've never actually worked uh, at a work site. And they turn up and they're sort of a bit anxious about it. And sometimes one of the things that stops them doing it is that they feel that they should be out there telling people how to do the job safely, when actually what they need to do is not that at all, but to go and ask the question about how are you doing this job safely and how can I help you be safe? If you were to give one piece of advice, that's probably it, is to talk about it 
and be visible about it and and establish a relative priority. Would you say that's yeah, that's a that's fair it. summary? So 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 the so the key thing is is to demonstrate to people that safety is is a, the, a top priority, and to do that though is really hard. Right. Because standing up and talking about it, people aren't probably going to believe you. What CEO is going to turn, stand up in front of their company and say, we don't care about safety here. Right. It's 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 pretty unlikely. <laughs> that's, not, that's, that's not going to happen. That, but it's probably not going to happen. I'm you just know, guessing. You know. guessing. So so as a as an employee listening to a manager saying, yeah, safety is our number one priority or safety is important. I'm probably thinking, yeah, really? No. I, I don't believe that. So it, leaders need to go beyond that to be able to send signals that employees can believe. And one of the one of the key signals is to go and sit down and talk to someone about safety. We did a study a number of years ago, uh, a master's student of mine, where we went and interviewed employees from a large um, uh, Canadian organization. And we asked them, how do they know the, the extent to which the CEO is committed to safety? They were able to tell us stories about the CEO meeting with employees and talking about safety and giving them uh, his his business card to say, you know, if you can't get that issue resolved, you know, you need to follow the right steps. But if you don't get it resolved after all those steps, you email me and, and I'll deal with it, right? Well, that's news. That's a story that I'm going to tell people. Because it's interesting. Life is boring a lot of the time at work. And you talk to your colleagues about work. So you've got to live off that story for quite some time. So I think I think CEOs misunderstand the impact that they have on others. One of my favorite phrases is what my boss finds interesting, I find fascinating. Exactly. <laughs> so that's a, out there, Saeed, wherever you are. Exactly. Um, I want to come back to um, productivity versus safety. Yep. And in particular, um, the concept of, of safety efficiency. Yeah. We need to, instead of saying, thinking about safety as, as something that we do, we need to think about safety as a way we do things, right? It's an approach to doing work rather than the work um, um, of itself. And sometimes when we, when, we, when we talk about safety, we often get caught up in the forms and the filling and the doing, doing these different activities that are safety activities, rather than the real purpose of, of those activities is just to influence how work is done. And an organization that is safe is also efficient. And it's, it's a two-way relationship because what you find is organizations that do safety very well do planning and organizing very well. Organizations that do safety poorly do planning and organizing uh, poorly as well. And um, if an organization is having a safety challenge, they probably have some other challenges as well. And becoming more efficient is is probably thinking about it from a safety perspective will actually probably help you rather than hinder you. So over the years, I think many organizations have improved safety by what I would call brute force, right? They've just added in layers and layers of things that people do rather than thinking about it thinking about redesigning the job and doing it better um, and more efficiently and also safely. And by just putting more barriers or making the job more difficult to do is not really improving safety. I think people think it is, but actually it's it's not. So more steps, more barriers to getting the job done does not necessarily uh, increase safety. That's really interesting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift gears a little bit and come back to storytelling. You know, I used to think I heard a, a speaker one time who gave me the sort of the concept leadership, focus, and discipline. Like I think mm. of leadership is you need leaders to care about it. We've talked about that. You need a best practice approach, which we've talked about mm. a little bit. Then there's the discipline to actually do it. Yeah. Do you have anything you could share with us in a practical example or a story? 
you often have, you know, you sit down as senior leaders, I can think of a particular organization, and they, you know, they'd had lots of challenges. And, you know, you would talk to them and they would say, you know, we really want to be better and we really want to improve and we're, our performance is poor. And so you'd say, well, here's here's some advice. So the example of, of um, a worksite visit program. So we designed a program uh, with them with an app so that they would be able to do uh, worksite visits and talk to their employees about safety. And, you know, instead of focusing on the, on the uh, lagging indicator, which they felt were unfair, did not represent their um, uh, their their safety performance. They felt that people were, you know, taking days off and wanting to uh, go fishing rather than uh, work. So that's why they were they had all these lost time claims. And so we said, okay, let's move away from the, the from the lagging indicators, which you have some concerns about. Let's move towards this being your your one of your leading indicators, where you go out and you visit the work site frequently, and um, you know you can you can control that. That's totally within your control. This is going to be how our performance is being assess and you know everyone's really happy with it but then we, we go back a year later and and they haven't done it right they their their loss of injuries are still as bad as ever but also they're not actually doing the meeting their their targets because we designed the app so we'd be able to tell you know had they been present had they had a conversation with someone well, it's not happening and you're saying well and then they you know, they're giving you all these excuses i mean i i must admit i got a bit frustrated with them and said look you know you're you're like <laughs> A bunch of undergrads, you know, someone who's wanting an A plus in the course and isn't isn't reading the material. So I didn't have a whole bunch of patience, um, but you know, so was relatively blunt and said, "Look, this is not acceptable. You made a commitment um, that you were going to actually do this stuff, and and you need to you need to move up." And this organization happened to be uh, owned by a single individual, and and the that owner said, "No, this is not okay." Um, change the people, senior people, um, and they then did put the effort and focus onto that particular activity. And um, I was talking to them uh, last week, and they're going and giving a presentation to their uh, insurer and all the the people who are insured in this organization because they've dramatically improved their safety performance uh, over the last year and a half, right? Where they've dropped it by I think forty two percent, right? So people obviously don't want to go fishing anymore um, because people <laughs> are visiting. People are, are visiting them yeah. and talking about safety. So it, it's definitely true that if an organization um, doesn't implement the safety controls and they don't yeah. actually do the activity, then you're not going to get any any better, right? You know, uh, you've, you've developed something called a cultural maturity model. What What's that and, and how does that work? Yeah. So, so this was, was came developed in 1999, believe it or not. And I was out with a friend of mine, a guy called Bob Miles uh, in Aberdeen, and uh, we were out for a few drinks, drowning our sorrows about how, how life wasn't necessarily working out. And, you know, through the sort of uh, the conversation of the evening, it became clear that really the issue was that people accepted that safety culture was important. They wanted to improve, but they weren't really going in the right direction. So how what we wanted to, to create was a framework that would help organizations improve their safety culture. And we did that by creating um, on a beer mat over a number of beers, this idea of, well, what would a framework be around safety culture improvement? And we'd be doing a lot of work uh, at the time on on software development, and there was a capability maturity model in, uh, that had been used in software. So we took that sort of framework and we said, you know, here's what a poor safety culture looks like, here's what a medium safety culture looks like, and here's what a good safety culture looked like. And we drew that out over, over a course of discussion. And then I remember getting a call the next day uh, from Bob saying, I still think think it's a good idea. And I'm like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> I'm like, I'm a bit, feeling a bit rough. And 
he's like, oh, yeah, we should do something on that. And we we wrote a report uh, for the health and safety executive in the UK, which was the first safety culture maturity model and the sort of first framework. Um, it's it's become popular. There's lots and lots of models out there now. But basically, they're all the same, which basically says, here is a, a roadmap for improvement. And what you need to do is work out where you are on that road and then move to the next step, right? You know, not try to emulate and copy uh, an organization that is a a world leader necessarily, but say, here's where we're at. Let's be real about that. Here's here's what our culture is like. How do we get a bit better? So I'm a real believer in this idea of incremental improvement. So safety improvement is not a wham bam. Let's get better in, in a in a in a one off event because it never lasts. It's about getting a little bit better every day. It's a bit like weight gain. Uh, you 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 gain and lose weight in ounces, and and that's how you need to manage it. Not like a crash diet. And safety it needs to be small incremental gains every day. So Mark, w- when we think about Fatality, and we, you know, a lot of a lot of industries have, uh, I'll call it, you know, it's more likely to happen there. If you look at fishing or construction, where you have falls from heights or you have people drowning, um, when you look at industries like healthcare, healthcare not as likely to have a fatality, so the challenges are a little bit different, right? And and we know in Nova Scotia, we've seen tremendous uh, progress in construction. In fishing, in a lot of the, the primary industries like logging, you know, our ship repair, you know, people generally great prevention programming and getting people back to work, and they're trying to improve and have a safety culture that we've been talking about here today. But in healthcare, doing more with less, coming back to that efficiency element, there's still big challenges. And is it different for healthcare? Yeah. So, so healthcare produces some really unique challenges in terms of the the way the service. Uh, is delivered and the criticality of the service, right? So if we think about construction, so say somebody wants to you know come to my house and and build something and they uh, you know run into a problem and they decide oh well we'll we'll come back tomorrow, right? Or we'll go get some equipment and come back in two weeks time. Well, okay, I might be upset as a customer, but the status of the the system is safe. Right, the 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 my the the work isn't done, so that the hazard is not being exposed. In healthcare, that's not often an option, right? Because mm-hmm. the what you're what the service you're delivering um, has a direct impact on the life of the person who you're giving it to, right? So so the 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 way that we often um, approach safety uh, and the the guidance that many companies use is, you know, stop the job. If it's unsafe, stop the job. That's our, our default situation. Pretty tough situation when you got somebody who's critical yeah. condition, and, so, and perhaps even the hazard yeah. is the patient. Yeah, exactly, because it can be abuse or violence that people face yeah, being exposed in, to. in the healthcare system, and there's no real walking away from it. Exactly, right? it becomes so that becomes a real challenge in terms of how we even think about uh, about safety within that within that context is because. Um, it's a dynamic environment. It's often quite unpredictable at times, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly, say you're working in an emergency uh, in an emergency room. You're gonna you're gonna have people who are who are coming in who who may well have uh, a medical condition, but also may be under the influence of drugs or alcohol, and therefore violent. And you're trying to treat them while at the same time um, trying to deal with that. And you know, there's a large range of very dyna- it's a very dynamic environment, and there's a large range of hazards that actually in that context can be difficult to. So definitely in healthcare, it's a much, much bigger challenge um, because of the the service you deliver and the person, the sorry, the hazard is often the person you're trying to treat. Right. 
right? Whether it's somebody who you're trying to uh, lift, um, whether it's someone who you're trying to sort of protect, whether it's someone you're trying to treat. So, um, you know, needle stick injuries, workplace violence, um, manual handling issues. And often in some ways, the the sort of approach that we take, sort of taking sort of the the manufacturing approach to safety and trying to apply it to healthcare don't, don't work very well. So um, when I was a student, I did uh, work as a care assistant at times and, you know, trying to do manual handling. So you're trying to get a client into, uh, into a bath um, and then, you know, you're supposed to put them on a hoist, right? Well, okay, that seems like a really good plan from an occupational health and safety professional's uh, perspective. But actually, from a dignity caring perspective, it's actually a very difficult thing uh, to do in practice. So I, I think some of those challenges make it much more difficult in, in a healthcare setting. But that means that we need to have better systems and need to put more effort into safety rather than rather than less. And if we look at, you know, the healthcare system as a whole, actually, it speaks to why investing in safety is the the most sensible approach. Um, we have a shortage of healthcare professionals across this province, across the world, in reality, and some of that shortage is to do, do with people on long term disability, people who actually can't come back to work because of an injury that they've had. And you know, in that context, well, we should be we should be trying to improve um, and and reduce that just to be able to retain the staff that we have, and also. Again, I spend time talking to healthcare workers. A lack of concern for their safety is a big, a big issue for them, and part of the reason why they leave the industry. And yet, this does not seem to be getting the same sort of level of of political attention that wait lists have. And people don't see the connection between you can't get treated or your emergency room is shut because we don't have staff. Well, actually, the staff we're missing are often nurses. Well, why are we missing them? Well, they're leaving because their experience of work is very unpleasant and very unsafe particularly around the space of violence um, uh, in, in, in those contexts and about what are the strategies we need to put in place to manage that more effectively. In healthcare, the numbers are up and uh, more people getting injured. 30% of the time loss injuries in this province are happening in healthcare. You'd yeah. be surprised to think that. Yeah. And the, you know, one of the most dangerous occupations is a home care worker. Exactly. That they're likely to get hurt. So anyway, one question yeah. that, that's um, always on my mind is how do we keep our youth Safe, you know, young workers. They they join uh, the the workforce. They want to be obedient. They're going to do as they're told. Mm-hmm. What's the advice around young workers? Or any thinking there that uh, that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, so I think as you mentioned in a previous podcast, the the them understanding their rights is one is a, is an important first step, but also being able to sort of manage that, right? So the, so they we 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 take this person on, we have to appreciate that they know nothing, right? You know, they they have very little knowledge about how work is done and they they want to sort of prove that they're that they're doing a good job. So you're going to rely on so there's some stuff you can give to the worker, right? You can educate them about their rights, you can tell them it's okay to stop the job and those sorts of things. You can have an orientation and and a period of of um where they're they're identified as a new worker. Um all of those things can help. Probably the most important thing, though, is what are you doing to your existing workers 
your frontline staff who are going to be supporting those people. They're the people who you really need to influence to take care of and look out for that uh, new worker. Um, and in some uh, work contexts, people do that and they do a really good job of it. In other work contexts, actually, the new worker and the young person uh, is seen as someone who they can t take and make fun of and they can take advantage of. And, and and I think if you see that within your work group, it's it's poor from a whole range of, of, of issues like turnover and, and people aren't going to stay with you because uh, I think usefully workers now won't stand for that. But I think you need to think about what are your existing workers doing? How can they be the people who step up to be the leaders to take care of those new people? So you want to develop those um, mm -hmm. more experienced workers to be able to train and look out for um, those new and inexperienced workers and give them some skills and some responsibility in that space. Right? Yeah. One of the things that dawned on me listening to different speakers is that sometimes companies pass on the bad habits to the young people. Yep. Like if you've got a shortcut and you teach people the shortcut, then it's likely that that's part of the culture. Then the young workers likely to get hurt just like the old workers are, are you know what I mean? Yeah. What, oh, yeah. But if, so you've got a, if you culture, have a really good right? safety culture to begin with, then they say, no, 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 don't do, do it that, that way. way. Slow down. Yep. To take take all of your focus and make sure that you're going to be okay. Yeah. Right? So I mean, and I that think, permission element, right? Exactly. But also that culture, right? So so the thing about it, you know, people said, oh well, once well once these sort of old workers all retire, we'll have safer workers because we'll have these new workers who are all trained. That's that that does is not how it works. People go and look and see what everyone else is doing, and then you work out what's happening. That's right? like that's like having one child start to behave, and yeah. the other three that you have, <laughs> they're just not listening. Yeah, yeah. That's not going <laughs> to happen. They're not going to all behave just because one does. Exactly. Exactly. So I think there's a sort of sense in which, you know, you want to be able to get them, uh, you know, to, to, to look at that culture because your new workers are actually the people who are going to reflect that culture the most because right. they're the ones right. looking out. We're social beings. We look out. What is everyone else doing? Right. right. You know, it's the norm. It's right. the norm. Yeah. I, to give you an example, I turned up at work for my first, very first job and I went there for my interview. And when I went into this is a university, but it was a different university. So I went there and when I turned up for my interview, everybody was really formally dressed. So I turned up my first day at work, you know, in a suit and all dressed up and, you know, I turned up and everyone was really casual, like in a university <laughs> and it was laughing, what the hell's wrong with you? And I was like, well, when I was here the last time, everybody was wearing suits. Oh no, we had an audit. Right. No, we don't normally wear this stuff. Right. You know, so yeah. we are very socially sensitive about what everyone else is doing and we right. want to get it right. New workers, particularly. So they're going to do what everyone else does. One thing that I think that companies could think about is that often we, we sell safety as taking care of yourself and going home to your family. And there's definitely an argument there. I think it's probably more important to say work safely to take care of your friends and your colleagues at work because your behavior if you don't follow the safety rules, then this new kid isn't going to follow the safety rules and, and they're likely to end up getting injured. Uh, when we look to the future, do you have any thoughts about what's next? Because, you know, shortage of people, hazard identification, all that that goes along with mm -hmm. that, the pandemic. Do you have any yeah. anything, I call it the yeah. pandemic parallel because yeah. it actually has improved safety some way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I for me, I don't think we know exactly what that mechanism is that's happened over the pandemic. But we do recognize across a range of industries that safety has improved, even in industries that continued working uh, throughout the pandemic. And um, from a sort of safety culture framework, my best guess would be that it is to do with um, involving employees in safety. 
right? So one of the things that organizations had to come up with was how do we operate? How do we open up um, uh, and manage this virus? What are the controls we need to have in place? And they went and talked to their staff and asked them how we're going to do this. And their staff said, oh, we could do it this way, mm -hmm. right? And that uh, engagement of staff in, in designing the controls is a key part of, of um, a positive safety culture. If you want to build a safety culture, um, one of the first steps is to- need to ask to, the questions and yeah, be inquisitive, right? Ask, ask staff, how, what's the best way to manage those hazards? And I think for me, I would go a little bit further and say, what's the most efficient way uh, to manage those hazards? Are there, are there better ways of doing this rather than it coming down from on high saying, this is the new control system that we're going to put in place? And I think that engagement is going to be uh, important. And I think it, it's going to be even more important in the future uh, for two reasons. New people coming in, right? So the only way we're going to solve our current labor shortage is to bring in new people from either other parts of Canada, other parts of the world, or uh, bring in people into the workforce who haven't been there in the past. So that's definitely going to be an issue. Um, so to, to bring those people in, we're going to need to engage people in that, in that process. Mm -hmm. And also, we're going to need to skill up our existing workers to be different. Right. So to a certain extent, we often uh, don't draw on that resource. So your experienced uh, staff who are in your uh, organization, that they are the leaders for the less experienced staff. They right. may not have a management role, but they're a leader within your organization and be giving them the both the recognition and the, uh, and the authority to say, look, I've been here for a number of years. My part of my job is to look out for others um, who are maybe less experienced, who know less about the the job than I do. So building on those skills, I think, will be really important as organizations go forward. So leadership, not just for the management supervisory um, leaders, part of come it. from everywhere. Yeah, yeah. everyone's yeah. a leader, right? Everyone's a leader. Yeah, it's an important concept. You know, and therefore, to what extent are you trying to manage those those leaders in any real yeah. any real sense, right? Just just before we wrap up. Um, do you have any recent research projects in healthcare construction, you know, things that are helping improve outcomes and culture that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, so we're just wrapping up a project that was uh, funded uh, generously by Amira and MyTax, uh, where again it was it was uh, part of the sort of uh, pandemic where we developed a uh, online safety leadership training uh, for uh, supervisors uh, across their organization, um, uh, and that's been a really interesting sort of process. And and the way we tried to do it was to to take more of a management development approach. So uh, or participants did a sort of a base line to understand their current skills. We then recommended modules uh, for a sort of online modules on safety leadership that they could take. There was nine modules and they took a certain proportion of those. Nobody took all of them. All, everybody took some of them. And then we did uh, coaching sessions where we, uh, again, did it remotely uh, via Teams and uh, met with the, the leaders over a sort of uh, three or four week period where we, we we had a discussion about a topic. We gave them an activity to do uh, for the for the next um, uh, session. And then, you know, we'd have a conversation about that. And that was a very effective uh, sort of process. And one of the really simple exercises that we did that was uh, was surprisingly effective was um, we gave these supervisors a task where we got them to uh, get a jar 
and uh, two jars and, and fill them with with marbles or stones or any sort of particular thing, sweets. And every time that they went out and praised someone, they moved a stone from one jar to the next. Because what we wanted to say was they needed to go out and talk to people about safety positively, not picking people up on safety failures, but going out and having a positive conversation uh, around safety. And we set them a target to do that um, so many times every day. And they recognized themselves by moving I the love stones that. I love so that, that they would f empty one jar yeah. and fill the other. It's visible, uh, right? Yeah, it's that they could see how well they were doing over the period of the week. And it transformed the conversations that they were having about safety. I'll right? bet it, wasn't I'll it, bet it did. It wasn't yeah. that they weren't talking about safety beforehand, but it tended to be more triggered by they saw someone not doing something safe and they would say something. Mm -hmm. And this activity was you need to go out and praise someone meaningfully for something that they're doing safely. And it changed the conversation and it changed the way that the employees spoke to them and came to them about safety conversations in, in actually a very short period of time. So we only spoke to these people for, for uh, three or four weeks. And over that time frame, they were saying, wow, it has totally changed the conversations we're having. Just that very simple thing of giving them a jar saying, here's the number of marbles you've got. You go and move them from one jar to the other. And over the period of the week, you'll know that you've praised 20 people. That's pretty cool. Actually, a really, really great idea. Uh, I do want to thank you uh, for today. Um, I'm also going to solve a medical issue for you. Your ears have probably been burning for the, like the last 20 years because I'm sure I quote you every single week at work. I can say, um, Dr. Mark Fleming, that uh, I've probably learned more from you on safety climate. I've, I really value our conversations over the years because I get jazzed from this. This is There's so much... This has been rich. There's a lot here that that I'm going to go back and listen to again. And uh, I, I'm very grateful for you making the time to share this with our listeners on WorkShift. Um, so thank you very much. And you have a, a great rest of your day. And thank you for being so, for so generous with your time and your ideas. Really good. appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Stuart. Always, always good to chat. You are listening to WorkShift, a podcast from the Workers' Compensation Board of Nova Scotia. If you would like to learn more, you can visit worksaferlife.ca.